Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it's been a head-scratcher from the start. First, the imperative was to get workers to work from safe places, their homes preferably. Then it was clear this wouldn't be a short-term phenomenon, so some workers wanted to swap out those homes for other homes, maybe even other states. But what do the companies do, those that are still paying rent for those employees' workspaces? Well, Noah Buhayer is real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. He has the cover story of the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, and it's called The Work From Home Boom Is Here To Stay, Get Ready For Pay Cuts. Noah, it's a great story. Talk to us about the decisions that companies are having to make now, nine months into this pandemic with no end in sight and the possibility of a very changing geographic workforce. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I think it's a, it's a really um, interesting question. And, and a lot of this has been evolving over the course of this year as companies have, have realized that um, workers, their employees can be quite uh, productive at home. There, there are certainly drawbacks, and I think we're starting to see that. So what companies are, are, are starting to do is come up with policies um, that imagine uh, you know, what the rules of the road are going to be when, um, when offices can be reopened safely. You know, do you have everyone come back um, every day of the week? Are they doing more hybrid schedules coming in a few days a week? Um, and to what extent do you allow workers uh, who want to um, just to move somewhere in, in entirely different? Um, maybe it's a small town, maybe it's closer to family, uh, but somewhere that's not so close to the office. Well, and there's this new little phrase that's coming in and something tells me that we're all going to be using it very soon called localized compensation. What is that? Well, it's, it's just it's an idea that's been around and been in practice for uh, for a long time. I mean, companies, even the federal government pay different wages uh, for the same work in different places. And, and it's just a reality that the cost of labor and the cost of living vary um, widely across the U.S. And as a result, um, companies try and pay in accordance with local labor market conditions and with, you know, something that would allow their workers, um, if they're, you know, professional, to live a sort of what we consider a professional lifestyle and fill in the blank city. And, um, you know, there's data out there and companies use this data, but now they're having to think about, well, how do we um, pay people who make these voluntary moves to uh, places where we may not have an office. Right, because if some of what your pay is based on is the city that your headquarters is in, you can imagine how companies would feel a little odd if, if suddenly you went to a place where the cost of living was half the price or what have you. There's going to be a lot of litigation about this though, right? I mean, workers are going to make the case that they're them, whether they're in New York City or San Francisco or Montana. You know, I, I, I think there are a lot of strong feelings about this. I don't know if there's going to be litigation per se. I mean, this is something that's been around for a while, and I think a lot of people who've made these moves, including some of the employees I interviewed for my story, get that if you're living in a place that's cheaper to live, it, it, it's fair um, in a way to be paid less, and that in many cases, um, companies uh, are still paying you uh, so that you can afford a similar lifestyle or even a better lifestyle in the place you've chosen to relocate. 
I mean, how much is a company entitled to know? If you if you move back in with your parents, for example, and you're not paying any rent, you're not paying any utilities, or you're just giving your parents some money. I mean, is is that something a company is entitled to take into account? Imagine, say, those parents well, were I, in a city. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that that's how these policies are being rolled out. In, in fact, I mean, that sounds like more of a temporary arrangement. And the company I profiled, Redfin, you know, explicitly says that these temporary moves that are happening during the pandemic, those, they're not adjusting pay for those people. They're, they're talking about folks who are making a life decision to, say, leave New York and move to Rochester closer to where they have family, and they're settling down there. It's, these, are, these, are, these are permanent moves. These are not, um, you know, I'm trying to keep myself and my family safe during the pandemic. Uh, I'm, I'm going to leave this town. These are, these are people who are making long-term decisions. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see what human resource departments do after people are vaccinated. I mean, will they hold, you know, recruitment events in, in all sorts of places and be quite happy to, to take somebody on staff from a state that is nowhere near a headquarters or even an outpost? It will be interesting well, to see. In, I think, yeah, yep. and I think that's what we're seeing. So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It gives the American labor force so much more choice, and also makes makes the possibility f- for it to be more mobile, right? And that's been one of the problems for the American labor force. It's it's not as mobile as other labor forces, and you know, going across state lines and so on entails all sorts of other sort of tax rules and so on. So we'll see how that all plays out. But no, I do want to ask you though. Um, banks, for example, you know, there are certain banks that are talking about increasing bonuses for some of their star staff this year. And it's not just the banks. So on the one hand, we're seeing them try to, to cut costs, maybe close headquarters, close some of their office buildings and so on. But they're not docking pay or uh, reducing pay for their star staff, are they? No, I mean, look, I, that, that that seems to be the evidence that, that our colleagues here at Bloomberg are are reporting. Um, but look, I, what, what my story is really about are, is, is a long-term shift in how companies are thinking about this. And for all those star traders who may be getting bigger bonuses, I think we're seeing some early indications that Wall Street firms are looking at what positions don't have to be in New York and, and what they can move to lower cost places. And, and, and frankly, some of, some of their back office staff, some of their staff might find that they can lead better lives if, if they can live in, you know, say, Nashville or Dallas than, than having to live in the New York City metro area where costs are significantly higher. Right. And sometimes it takes almost as long to get into the city from the likes of Brooklyn. (laughs) Just kidding. Noah, thank you. There is room for uh, just a little levity here as well. Noah Buhayer, real estate reporter with Bloomberg News, has been doing a lot of research on this, on the work from home boom and what it really means for the workforce of the future here in the United States. So do check out his story. It is the cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, available now on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. And they're always great reads, great graphics and uh, great pictorials associated with these cover stories. So this one is no different. I really urge you to check it out. So that does it for this week for Bloomberg Markets uh, 10 to 12 show. Do stay tuned. Balance of Power is next and we'll bring you up to date on stimulus talks and what's going on in Washington, D.C. and 
As for markets, right now the S&P 500 is down more than half a percent, so is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The Nasdaq is down, but not by as much, down by a quarter of a percent or so. We have the VIX at 23, the dollar index just inching above 90 once again. And uh, for those of you keeping track of Brexit, there's still a couple of days left for a potential deal. Sunday night is it, if it wants to get ratified by all the 27 countries before the end of the year. Right now, the British pound has come off about three tenths of a percent versus the euro trading at one ten forty. The Conference Board leading index of economic indicators came in better than forecast in November at 0.6. Economists were looking forward to show a 0.5 reading. Not only that, but the October data was revised better as well. The overall index coming in at positive 0.8 in October when the original reading was positive 0.7. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about what's going on underneath the surface here, and that is Dana Peterson, Chief Economist for the Conference Board. Dana, what is actually leading the leading index? Sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, when we look at the details here, there's been uh, surprisingly a lot, a very positive contribution from jobless claims, uh, which added two tenths of, of a percentage point to the overall six tenths increase. Um, also, ISM new orders uh, continue to be strong, as well as uh, contributions from building permits and stock prices. So some of these areas are not at all surprising. Uh, certainly, we know that uh, manufacturing uh, uh, new orders have been improving with uh, improving uh, trade globally, and also as many businesses, uh, factories can affect social distancing. Uh, we also know that construction, residential construction, has just been booming. It's on fire in the U.S. And so it makes absolute sense that permits have been um, uh, very positive contributors. And finally, when we look at stock prices, uh, indeed, the tech sector, healthcare stocks, um, also to a certain degree, financial stocks um, have been driving gains. And so all those things are being reflected in the overall measure. So the leading index, you know, rebounded quite quickly and was extraordinarily positive. At one point, it was, you know, above two, it's close to three. And, and now we're sort of coming back down to earth. At what point will it start to concern you in terms of the reading for the leading index? I mean, we're already a little bit concerned by the fact that, you know, with each, even though each month it's shown a positive reading, it's smaller, right? Mm. And so that suggests that we did uh, see a deceleration in growth heading into the, the, the last quarter of this year, and that potentially the first quarter of next year we might see a soft patch. Um, certainly we've also seen uh, this behavior reflected, you know, more retroactively, of course, but in the the jobs data um, as uh, payroll gains have been smaller and smaller and the unemployment rate is falling uh, at a more glacial pace. Um, so we are keeping watch on this and, you know, seeing whether or not there's going to be a second dip in our leading index and also our uh, concurrent uh, leading in, uh, concurrent measure of, of activity. Dana, what is the conference board's current outlook for inflation next year? Yes, well, we have inflation rising a little bit, um, uh, but staying beneath 2%. Uh, and really, that's going to be a reflection of, of you know, basis effects from very weak inflation this year, uh, 2020, but also a rotation of consumption, you know, a little less spending on goods, more spending on services, um, where you could see a little bit of inflation there. Um, but all in all, a pretty modest inflation outlook. 
So not too much concern there. There are some economists, I suppose, trying to sound an alarm on that. Dana, you also did a really phenomenal uh, study into the impact of the pandemic on race and also the impact of the pandemic on women. And you found something very disconcerting when it comes to studying the female labour force. You're actually calling it a she-session. Can you explain to us some of the key findings of that report? Sure, absolutely. What we've seen is that, um, especially in the U.S., where we have the most complete data, very early on in the pandemic, women suffered uh, much deeper job cuts than did men. I mean, it was horrific across the board, but it was much more acute for women. And a lot has a lot of that to do with the fact that women are working in many of those sectors that have been very negatively impacted by COVID. Um, but as we saw job gains pick up, um, we saw more women exiting the labor market. And we believe that's a function of a few things. Number one, uh, the fact that, you know, there's still this childcare crisis in the U.S. that was there before the pandemic, but has only gotten worse. Um, many times women find themselves that they are tasked with caring for older adults, but also many kids are in and out of school physically. And so oftentimes the, uh, the responsibility of, of educating children from home falls on mothers. And so we've seen uh, a lot of women exiting the labor market uh, that's very apparent in the uh, payrolls data. I'm sorry. Uh, well, yeah, the payroll report, uh, Friday employment report that comes out where labor market participation among women has been falling. Yeah. And as you say, even if the job exists, in some cases, women have to leave it because they just have responsibilities that they can't fulfill at home unless they're there. Right. Dana, how much of this will turn out to be structural unemployment for women? Will the female labor force bounce back as quickly as as the the male labor force? Well, our hope is that this will be a blip and that uh, female labor force participation as well as male labor force participation will bounce back and return to pre-coronavirus levels. But, you know, certainly the longer people are out of the labor market, the more difficult it is for them to rejoin because of perceptions that, you know, either their skills have atrophied or they're kind of going to be behind. So it's going to be very important for employers to find ways to uh, encourage flexibility in labor force, uh, in labor market activity, um, in terms of allowing people to work from home, uh, potentially providing on-site or near-site childcare, um, and also reskilling their workers and training to make sure workers get back on track, um, such that we don't have this, these permanent losses in the labor market among women as well as among men. Dana, we're pretty out of time, but what's the GDP forecast from the conference board for 2021? Yes, we're expecting growth of 3.6% next year. Okay, 3.6%. Not uh, not negative growth, at least, but we'll need a little bit more than that to bounce back, probably, from where we're from. Dana, thank you so much for joining. That is Dana Peterson, Chief Economist with the Conference Board there. This, as the leading index, comes in a little better than forecast, but as Dana said, slowing all the while. This is one of the stories that's extremely disconcerting and also filters out slowly such that you don't really know exactly how big or important a story it is for a little bit uh, after the original announcements. I'm talking about the hacks, the hacks that have been filtering out newswise in the middle of this week and even more yesterday. Let's bring in somebody who is up to date on what it all is and how concerned we should be. Kartike Mehrotra covers security and particularly computer security, cyber security and the like for Bloomberg News. Kartike, bring us up to date on exactly who was attacked and how many attacks there were. 
Yeah, we are uh, still figuring this out. It's been uh, almost a week since, uh, no, it's been 10 days since, <clears throat> excuse me, the FireEye breach was first uh, declared publicly. And since then, it's just been uh, a lot of questions and, and very few answers. What we do know is that a handful of federal agencies were targeted, including uh, Commerce, Treasury, uh, parts of DHS, um, and uh, as well as uh, the Department of Energy and uh, the Nuclear Administration. Uh, these very sophisticated Russian attackers have been targeting um, critical infrastructure and, and entities that are of government interest. But exactly who has been targeted and uh, the scope of the attack is still up in the air. There are uh, you know, federal investigators, private investigators at, at Microsoft and other incident response companies that are you know, pulling apart pieces of this. Uh, the scope is massive. Uh, the company that was breached older wins. They provide uh, IT solutions largely for the federal government, but also they're, they're all over the place. They're, they work with um, but the financial institutions, telecommunications companies, defense contractors. They're a third party that's part of the security supply chain um, that uh, was targeted and using a software update, um, malware was was inflicted upon uh, up to 18,000 of their clients. Now, that doesn't mean that 18,000 victims exist. These Russian attackers are very sophisticated, very meticulous and detailed in the way in which they're targeting their victims. So as of now, we are hearing that there are potentially dozens, maybe up to hundreds of victims. So of those 17,000, there are about um, 40 to to maybe over 100 victims so far. But um, that number is going to go up as time passes. Um, it, it's, it is a uh, tedious task trying to figure out if you have been targeted. And that's what most companies, most agencies are doing right now. Amazing. And it's suspected Russian hackers now we don't know what they've got, how much of it they have, but assuming they have something, will they be able to interpret data? Will they be able to extract useful information? Or is this just data that will be coming in, you know, in, in megabytes to the Russians and, and they, they'll find it difficult to actually do anything with it? Yeah, no, uh, they, they know what they're doing. Um, we don't have evidence of exfiltration yet, but it's, it's obviously a... Um, cause for concern, um, you know, when when any adversary has this level of unmitigated long-term access, which goes back at least to March, if not further, um, surely they will have gotten their hands on um, files and data that companies and governments of the United States would have preferred they not have their hands on. Now, exactly what they have and how it will be weaponized is uh, still a question that we're all trying to answer. But, you know, the presumption is that they knew what they were looking for. They likely got access to at least portions of it. And this is intelligence that will feed their um, operations, right? Uh, their geopolitical status, you know, trying to assert Russia as a, um, you know, a power on par with, with other um, uh, economic superpowers, even as that country's uh, economic prowess sort of dissipates. Uh, this is a, a tool and a mechanism to to show the world that they're still on the on, on the platform. And, uh, you know, depending on what the intelligence tells them, they, they could use it for uh, uh, for political purposes or otherwise. 
Cartier, in a sense, the damage is already done. What can authorities do to try to mitigate the damage or prevent weaponization, as you say, including President Trump? Yeah, so, you know, companies that have been exposed have been directed by the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency to cut off um, any portion of their network that has um, the SolarWinds malware and, and uh, if they can, uninstall it altogether. Um, at this point, um, so what happened is that when, when the malware was installed uh, in, uh, in devices, these, uh, these victims had to figure out if they were actually then targeted um, with an attack. Was that malware activated? Uh, to spread through that network and infect it. And so that is what investigators are doing right now. And it's a tedious task because these attackers have cleaned up their footprints as best they can. And are, are so it's a manual operation in some cases. They're going through thousands of lines of code to see if anything's wrong. Yeah. Um, the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, cut short an overseas trip earlier this week to come back to Washington to help mm-hmm. manage the crisis. That's what the administration is doing right now is sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation to figure out exactly the scope of the operation. Kartike, it might be up to you to keep us all informed, so thank you for all of your work so far. Kartike Mehrotra on the Russian-linked SolarWinds hack. Do follow him. All right, well, we know that Moderna's vaccine has won backing from FDA advisors. That puts it on track to be the second cleared in the US, perhaps even as soon as today. For more on this and as well, the little hiccups that we've been seeing with the rollout of the vaccine, small though they may be, let's bring in Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So, Dr. Sauer, is there anything that you've seen in terms of the little hiccups that, we, that we've heard about from discarding doses at Moderna after a filtration issue to the idea that, you know, Pfizer actually had more doses in its vials than previously uh, known? Anything that gives you cause for concern? I think concern might not be the right word, but I think it just demonstrates that the these other elements of vaccine distribution are so critically important, right? It's not just um, getting the science behind making the vaccine and testing the vaccine and evaluating the vaccine's efficacy, but um, the supply chain. So ramping up dose production, making sure that the process to get it into the hands of vaccinators and people who are getting vaccinated works, um, making sure that people believe in the process and, and trust the process enough to get the vaccine. All those things are showing how critically important they are. And these hiccups are um, par for the course in this very short ramp up of production. But I think it, it just demonstrates how careful we have to be in this process to make sure that we're using every pre- precious dose that crosses our hands. Do you have confidence in the distribution system as it is now? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing that the distribution system is working as well as could possibly be expected given the short turnaround. I think some of the feedback that we're hearing from Pfizer and the administration and the possibility that fewer doses will go out shows that it's far from perfect and um, communication becomes critically important in these, um, this really intricate distribution process. Um, I think seeing things like the potential for an extra dose or two in the Pfizer vials, um, hearing that some of the production delays, I think um, we're, we're seeing that actually there's a lot of eyes on, on the process and that, that the kinks are being worked out really quickly, which is great. So even though we're identifying challenges in the process, we're working through them, you know, in, in this like whole response that allows us 
to fix it and 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 improve efficiency as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's such a great point because everybody really has the same goal here. On that, the idea that there might be extra doses in the Pfizer vials, is there anything that concerns you about that? Because it seems to me that... You know, if Pfizer won't sort of, you know, officially say there's more than five, then are you at risk of getting just a little bit less than the dose that you need or just a little bit more than the dose that you need? It, it seems a little vague for me. Yeah, I understand that completely. I think, you know, these vials, are they're doing that because they want to ensure that, that there's no... Um, undercutting of what the expectations are, right? So um, the idea that, that there may be an extra dose or an extra dose and a half in these vials is not unreasonable given the scale that we're talking about and how quickly um, things are being partitioned and measured out. The, the, I think the risk comes when you try to say like, oh, yes, you could get six, you could get potentially six and a half or seven. Um, but if you tell everyone there's five doses in this file and you should get five doses, you're not you, you have less likely that people are going to get um, a smaller dose. Right. So um, perhaps you'll be surprised with an extra dose and you can vaccinate several hundred extra people over the course of the projection. Um, but you don't risk under underestimating or you don't risk overestimating who you can vaccinate. So you don't risk people getting left out. Is there a little bit of a danger, though, if there is a, you know, a half dose left and somebody decides they'll combine that with a half dose from another vial? Does that not sort of let in the risk of contamination and so on, Lauren? Yeah, I think we want to we don't want to see that. So um, I know many places have made the determination not to combine partial doses from multiple vials. So that might mean a little bit of wasting at the at the bottom of that vial. Um, but that's really a safety issue that I think it, it is the right decision to not combine partial doses. It, it gets into measurement challenges, it gets into contamination challenges, and it gets into like basic accounting challenges. So when you're thinking about who you vaccinate and how you track them, um, you want to be sure that you're not taking those those steps where error can enter because you'll also have to follow up all of these people with additional vaccinations for their booster shots. And so you want to make sure that you have the appropriate number of booster shots for the people that you vaccinated initially as well. I mean, there are so many things that have to go right here. And having seen how the PPE distribution system worked, it doesn't inspire that much confidence. But I, I guess, I mean, is there any room for, let's say, criminality here? I mean, can can people manage to get away with the types of things they were getting away with when it came to PPE, selling selling stuff online illegally and so on? I think that um, it's a slightly different environment. Um, I, I do, I, sh- I share the concern uh, that there are potential for... Um, for bad actors. I think we always see that in emergencies because there's, um, you know, when the regulations become relaxed or when, um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation spreading, um, that's where these people and these activities flourish. I I think there's a lot of eyes on this process and there's so few places where you can actually get um, legitimate vaccine supply that it's much less likely that you will see this happen because yeah. someone, a new company could pop up and say, we're making an N95. It's totally approved. You're good. Yep. You're not going to have a new company pop up and say, we've reproduced the Pfizer vaccine. You're totally good. It's, it's fine to take it. so true about the number of eyes on all of this process. Lauren, thank you so, so much. As always, that is Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews 
interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.